You're listening to the Down the Pub podcast, Canada's premier football show. Head to downthepub.ca to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Welcome to this episode of the Down the Pub podcast. We are joined by journalist and writer Owen O'Callaghan, uh, who's the author of Keen Origins and has also recently joined New York Nine as a content creator. Uh, most Canadians would know Owen as the host of Fox Soccer Report and being best buds with Jay Burchell. Uh, welcome to the show, Owen. Thanks for having me. No worries. Um, I know there's a huge big list of stuff that you do, but it's hard to narrow it down to journalist and writer. Um, and, uh, and Carlos is with us again. Sure. <laughs> really good at writing the CV up. Um, uh, and welcome to the show again, Carlos. Thanks for joining no, us again, Carlos. No problem. Thanks and welcome, Owen. Thanks for being in the pot. No, no worries, Carlos. I look forward to exchanging Spanish pleasantries with you later. <laughs> love it, love it. So, uh, Carlos, uh, Carlos has a few questions there. So, far away, Carlos. Yeah, sure. Um, Owen, um, how is uh, the new role now that you are working for uh, York Nine? Um, can you tell us a, a little bit about that? How the opportunity came up? Um, is this something that uh, you were planning to do, you know, when the Canadian Premier League started? What intrigued you to take this role now with this club? I guess it was just a conversation. Um, mm-hmm. I had a com- conversation with Gus McNabb during quarantine. It was one of those <laughs> Zoom calls. You tended to have Zoom calls with everybody. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's hop on Zoom call. Okay, I've never met you, but fine. Um, it wasn't weird during the pandemic because, uh, you know, the whole world is in the midst of chaos. So exchanging Zoom contact information is not weird with perfect strangers at all. So, um, no, I was very uh, intrigued when York 9 announced Gus was coming on board. Um, we've got a mutual friend, Porrick Smith, who runs Colorado Rapids in Major League Soccer. And so I knew of, of Gus and, and what he was doing in his own career. And it was a really eye-catching appointment. And it was something very, very different. You know, obviously, Canadian soccer circles, usually the same faces and the same figures crop up. Mm-hmm. And this seemed to be a, a little bit of a radical departure and the fact that it was moving into a second season, you know, the first season is always difficult, no matter what you're doing. Um, you know, there's no template, there's no manual. So it's, it's hard for, for any club or organization to, to try to, to build something very, very quickly, just out of thin air. And mm-hmm. so the second season, I thought that, that there was some scope there to, to, to look at what Gus's plans for the club were. And we just jumped on a call and we chatted about football. We chatted about, um, Canadian soccer and we chatted about North American soccer. We chatted about various, um, various things that excited us about what other were doing and, and what we felt, you know, we could possibly do together. And that was it. We, we had a, we had a chat and that, that was it. There, there was, there was nothing, um, there was, it wasn't as if there was a, a position going in the club. Um, it was just a, a chat that we had. And then he phoned me up and said, look, you know, we, the, the chat was really um, progressive and, and you know, he, he felt that we could do something together that was, that was really good and beneficial for, for the organization. And, and that's, that's, that, that's really how it came about. I mean, it, it's, you know, the things like this, it's all about chemistry. And I can't stress that enough. I mean, what happens on a field is one thing, but it's the same with front office. You know, if, if, you, if you don't have 
um, the same perspective on things and if you don't have the same sort of passion and the same drive and the same desires as the people around you in a front office environment, it just becomes like a jo- any other job. And when you work in football, it's not any other job. You know, you, it, it's, it, it gets in your blood and it, it, it kind of, it, it, it really, it takes, it's 24 seven and it's all encompassing and it's a bit of a drug and it's, it's a major rush and you don't ever want it to just become a job. And it's a kind of a way of life and it's a special culture. And, you know, that was what was exciting about the conversations that myself and Gus had. I felt like we were both on the same page. And so when, when he asked if it was possible to come on board and, and take on this role, it was a bit of a no brainer for me. Um, you know, I've, I've always felt it was a, a really interesting thing to, to get involved in, a, in an organization but clubs are are difficult because normally a club is established a culture is already there and you know in, in a modern football setting it's usually uh, backed by a corporation it's usually backed by a behemoth that's that's mm-hmm. behind everything and running everything and it's difficult for one person to get in there mm-hmm. and to have any seismic or uh, you know you know p- potentially potent influence on things because because there's so many layers within that business model. Um, so then you look at a CPL situation, which is young, it's new, and we're trying to shape something. And it's very organic. And it's kind of like an indie record label. You know, you're, yeah. you're kind of up against the, the giants. Mm-hmm. And there's scope to do things your own way and be creative. And you don't have the same level of sort of... Um, I'm not going to say pressure. There's always pressure, but there's not the same level of, of, um, you know, personnel and resources. You have to think outside the box. You have to get more creative and, and you have to, to just, to just kind of come up with things that, that other people can't really replicate. You know, you've got something like a secret sauce, a little bit of a different recipe and, you know, you kind of put all those ingredients together and, and it, it just, it just, fitted together really nicely for me in York 9 and uh, it's been great so far it's been very chaotic I mean I started and we you know we, we did a, a, a kind of a big Black Lives Matter thing that the, that the players really wanted to get behind which I thought was really powerful and um, and then immediately the guys left for PEI so you know and then it was straight into the tournament and then you know I was releasing a book and then I had a, my first child uh, and, <laughs> and so it's, it's been it's been a pretty incredible ride so far but we're just getting started which is the, the the biggest yeah. thing about it you know it's uh you know the, the level of detail and the level of information that that is is bounced back and forth between all of us every day is really exciting you know mm-hmm. it's, it's just it's it's you know it's really positive for for what comes next mm-hmm. um because i know people are hell-bent on wanting things now you know they, they want they wanted us to win a tournament in pei they wanted us to make a, a big improvement the fact is that you know it's baby steps all the way you know and you have to build a club gradually you have to build a culture gradually and it's a culture is not necessarily about winning it's about other things you're not going to win every day every time you go on a pitch so there has to be other elements within an organization that is part of who you are and what you represent the club and, culture yeah exactly and, and it's it's like and it's weird content is one of those buzzwords that um you know i, I think it, you, you constantly hear it and, and and people always think it's certain things um oh video it's lots of video um and it's not about that it's it's everything it's 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 your way of of spreading your message and it's a way of of letting people know who you are and i think that 
over the last few months, maybe people have started to see a little bit of a different perspective on York 9, a little bit mm-hmm. more of an identity kind of being built there. Um, and that's a credit to, to, to Gus and the rest of the team, the guys that I work with every day who have been there from, from, you know, from, from day one uh, and the, the level of passion that they have. Um, and it's, it's just very exciting. You know, it's, it's great to be a part of it. Um, it's great to be part of, 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 a, of a Canadian entity, um, you know, with, with obviously something as big as 2026 coming down the pipeline um, you know, in, in terms of what the league accomplished in a tournament in, in PEI within those parameters and those limitations and, and to get that off the ground was terrific. Um, and it's it's just, yeah, it's it's getting to go into work every day with a smile on your face is, is always a massive, massive bonus uh, because what we do and the industry we're working is it's a privilege, you know, and you can't forget that. You know, a lot of people go into work on a Monday morning and it's, it's nine to five and it's it's a fucking hellhole. And I don't know what you mean. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And uh, it is to work, to work within uh, a football community and and to to have that as as your bread and butter is is just a really special thing. And and hopefully, give it a couple more months and give it a bit more momentum. And as we approach into a next season, people can can really start to see that come together. This is great. Uh, this is great. One last one before I pass it to Anthony. Um, what's your take on the on the Canadian Premier League? I mean, um, it's been actually two seasons now. We got the Island Games this season and uh, first season last season. Uh, Forge the uh, champion twice. Um, it seems like uh, the quality it's improving uh, on the pitch wise and off the field as well for every club. What's your take on that one? Um, do you think this league? Uh, will be expanding. Um, I, I hope we will, and, and we're going to see new teams eventually. But uh, what do you think are, are the, the, the key ingredients now with the limitations of the CPL and COVID that the CPL can do to improve towards 2021 and the years onwards? Well, we it's funny. We just had a conversation with this earlier today. Um, and you have to be careful in how you word things like this because you don't want to come across as, as being insensitive. But on the other side of it, there is you know, uh, you know, there is an industry here with a lot of people employed and, and you have to kind of, you know, deal with that as well. And, and the, the, the big point is in terms of a pandemic and in terms of, you know, where, where so many countries are, are struggling with various industries and, and various things coming to, 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 a, to, to, to a stop and a, to a halt, you look at a place like Canada, you look at an economy like Canada's, you look at the consistency of a country like Canada, you look at how they've dealt with something like this. And from a football perspective, you know, you have to remember that footballers are human beings. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting when you look at something like the NWSL in, in the United States, uh, where all of their star players are going to the UK. And, you know, it's America is going through obviously a very, very chaotic time at the moment. And for various reasons, those players have moved on to, to, to take on loan deals elsewhere and to continue playing. Um, you can't tell me that's coincidental with what's happening in that country. Um, so from the CPL's perspective, and as we look ahead to 2021, um, players are looking at places where they can go, where they can get a livelihood where they can get um, a safe place to play the game they love, um, where they can be welcomed, where they can be um, taken care of, where the league doesn't sort of disintegrate. Um, and I think what you know, the league has proved with the Island Games is that there's a framework. Uh, they delivered on that framework. It went off. Everything went really, really well. It was a real success story. It was on national television in the country. So I think on, from that perspective, in a sensitive time, 
I think Canada has a real opportunity. The CPL has a real opportunity in terms of um, players coming, applying their trades here. Um, so that's that's the first thing in terms of the short term. I think when a lot of leagues around the world are, are kind of pretty furtive and unsure as to what the future is, I think the CPL is young. It's dealt with this situation already. It's got that experience under its belt. So it can, it can learn from that and then plan for next season. And this is an international market. And that's another thing about York 9, which I was really impressed with when I was speaking to Gus. We have to... It's... It's a two-way street. You, obviously, CPL, you love the local aspect of it and you love the community aspect of it. On the other side of that, you have to bear in mind that Canada is a major e- economy and people people really will want to come here and play football um, because this is North America and this is a big place and it's got beautiful cities and it's got great opportunities. And that's, you know, you know when I was talking to Gus, it was we were chatting about how York Nine is an international football club. First and foremost, it's a Canadian Premier League football club and obviously we're immensely proud of that. But we're also an international club and we want to make ourselves available to the best talent around the world to come to this country to play. And, you know, I think that in, in the current situation, you're going to see that really take hold with players, be it in South America, um, be it in Europe, they will look at Canada as a place where they can come and be looked after and play a good standard of football in a young league with some really good talent, really emerging. And then who knows, it puts you in a shop window um, and maybe it gets some interest again back in Europe in terms of sell-on, in terms of a new opportunity elsewhere when maybe we get on the other side of this. So I think all in all, the, the Island Games tournament was was just a really great success for, for lots of different reasons. Um, it could easily have fallen through the, the floor and, you know, because, it, it, again, it was something new. You know, you were, you were trying to figure it out as, as you went. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how will this go? Like, everyone cooped up in the same place. You know, we obviously had seen the, 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 the situation in terms of bubble tournaments in the United States across various leagues and, and, and how tenuous it is and, and how vulnerable maybe some people are in, in, in those sets of circumstances. So, all things considered, the exposure the league got. And also, let's talk for a second about the strength of diversity within this league and the representation of sense. Uh, sensitive subject matter that the players stood up and were so eloquent and cogent and really incredible with, uh, again, in comparison to maybe some other major leagues uh, that we may not talk about. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you, you know, these guys were so passionate about what they believed in, the messages that they wanted to get across. And that's a real testament to them and the types of characters that they are. Um, and it's a testament to the league. And it's, it's something that, that really we can, we can take Again, we can use as as a little bit of a, a vault in towards next season. Again, we we just we are starting to define ourselves more, and it's you know again first season is difficult. Now we're kind of in through a, a second a, a second tournament as such, and we put all those building blocks in place and and come next year and turn that corner into twenty twenty one we're going to get better again and everything is going to become a little bit more seamless. So just very, very optimistic and and, and very very um, excited at, at, at what's to come. Amazing. Um, the uh, so obviously there's there's such a uh, long off season. Um, how do you keep the club and uh, and the league itself relevant to people? Like because fans haven't been in to see games yep. live in over a year now or whatever, like whatever that time it is. Um, so how do you keep everything relevant? Like in terms of like I know you said it's not just videos and all that kind of stuff, but uh, keep the message going. Sure, it's like six seven months. Maybe that that we might be off. 
Yeah, I mean, you, again, you, you just have to get creative with it. Um, you know, it, we're not the only ones. We're not the only. We're not the only uh, organization that that doesn't have live supporters in front of them. And and you know, they, obviously, we don't have the resources and we don't have the mega bucks. Uh, you know, like like so many other uh, teams and franchises have, but. You know that's kind of my job, right? I come, I come up with some ideas, and, and we try to to make stuff happen. And um, you know, the, the one thing is that there are stories everywhere. And you know, I, I think that um, you even look at our at our organization, and, and you see a bunch of young kids. You talk about opportunities, right, in the face of adversity, and you look at something like a pandemic and what happens, and you're trying to assemble a roster, and certain players aren't available, and certain players can't get in the country, and quarantine time, and you lose that opportunity, and then you have things like Lowell Wright coming on as a 16-year-old kid, and I, you know, I spoke to that guy, you know, a couple of days before, and we're talking about why he wears the squad number he does, and it's Ronaldinho, and he watches his YouTube videos, and you know, the original Ronaldo, and I'm, I'm thinking, were you even old enough to watch him? you know and he, and he goes yeah it's probably 2010 2010 was probably the first World Cup I remember and I said right get out I mean get out of here um, and then he, then he goes out then he goes out and has this like pinch yourself moment right and and who knows that may not have happened if everything went according to plan right you wouldn't see him you wouldn't know about him you wouldn't get excited at the fact that there's a, a teenage kid who's got all of this potential and Max Ferrari the same and Aisha Halley who's just like a, a ready-made superstar and he doesn't even really know it yet um, you know the, all of those stories you get to put a spotlight on and you know sometimes those stories get lost in a regular season because the focus is on your high profile guys and it's you know the games come thick and fast and it's a review and it's a preview and it's some analysis and it's a interview with the coach and and there's your week and it's done the fact that you have a little bit of space and a little bit of time to have things breathe means that you can you can take um, a little bit more um, time and effort to, to properly kind of get behind your own guys um, and, and properly Kind of drive into into who they are and what makes them tick. And you know, a great example of that was was you know like it, it was probably the first week that I started at the club, and we did this roundtable with all the black players in the squad. You know, some obviously like Raj um, and Kyle, a little bit older, more experienced. And I'm I'm sitting there and watching these 16, 17, 18 year old kids talk about their racist experiences in suburban Ontario and the way they spoke and the intelligence with which they spoke, the sort of maturity that they had and then carried on their shoulders. It was just a really, really amazing thing to see. I'm very, very proud that they're part of our club, you know, because you're thinking, well, this is the future. So we're in safe hands. You know, um, there's that stereotype of a footballer who can't string two sentences together. And here's our guys who are just really vulnerable and opening up and very brave to talk about these sort of things. So, you, you, you know, you look at that and you think of, a football club is not just about football because if it was, it'd be really boring. Um, and, and one of the things that we want to establish with York 9 is how can, how can we use a platform that we have and we're lucky to have to delve into various things? You know, people look at sports organisations um, to, to break up they're a week, right? They look at sports organizations to provide some happiness and a jolt of positivity. And, you know, yeah, we, we, we can't have people in a stadium, but what we can do is we can still try and keep that connection. And we can try to tell stories about kids from Aurora or kids from Newmarket and make people proud. And if that's, 
you know, the only, if that's only through social media or stories on our website or some video or some, you know, uh, Insta lives or whatever it is, at least people can still, can still, you know, take a chunk out of that and, and, and absorb it and engage with it. Um, Cause that's ultimately what a club is. You know, it, it's something that, that kind of sits above everything else. Um, it's, it, it, it's, it's almost mythical. You know, you think of your relationship that you have with, with sport, right? You go into a, a venue, an auditorium, and you sit there and for 90 minutes or two hours or two and a half hours, whatever it is, you, you kind of step out of your body. You know, so 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 often, and Anto, you know about this, about GAA games particularly, like it, it's inhumane, you know, the noises you make, the songs you sing, it's, <laughs> it's just so abnormal. And and, and it's, it's wonderful. It's just so captivating and compelling. And what you want to try to do with that is replicate it with everything you do content-wise. You know, that experience that people have at games, you want to try to take that excitement and, and that level of, of passion and try to do it through storytelling and through visual content and through uh, interviews or profiles or whatever it is um and and to, to to try to just to try to just keep that connection um together because we, we mentioned at the top of the show you're trying to find connections in different ways now it's a pandemic so if that's a zoom call if that's picking up a phone and speaking to someone that you haven't spoken to in a while or like people are finding different ways of 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 getting those jolts of positivity now and you know it, it's again you look at sport and you look at the opportunity we have as an organization, it's important for us to keep on giving people a little bit of a break from, from that working week and, and, and to have them um, sit down and, and absorb some stuff that we do and enjoy it and, and, and just say to themselves, I'm so happy that this is my team. Um, you know, they're like, it, it's just something happy and positive and it's great. And I, I love being part of this. That's kind of what we want. Um, it's difficult, but you know what, again, coming back to my original point, when you work in football, it's a privilege. So um, that's the kind of mentality. Every day is a privilege for us. And, and hopefully, Again, over the next couple of months, our fans would be able to see that um, and, and kind of buy into what we're trying to sell. Um, you mentioned that um, it, uh, York Nine it's wants to be beyond a football club. It's, it's a football club, but wants to be like a culture for the community and, and transmit everything else to the fans and, and the culture and the community. Uh, do you think also that uh, being part, like because it's a football club, it helps better to promote to use this as a platform to promote these ideals this mantra to the community to the future generations because i don't see any other sport like football that can do this because football it's unity you know football it's 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 for me like i'm from south america like for me it's kind of like out of religion like every sunday we go to the stadium but football has this social aspect that can benefit and can promote staff This, uh, this idea, this ideology, um, you go to the stadium, somebody celebrates and you're hugging that you score a goal with somebody that you don't know. Football has that. So do you think that uh, it's part of a kind of like York Knights trying to embrace this for the history of the club in the future? You have to be optimistic and ambitious. And it's very, very easy to do nothing. It's very, very easy to just middle of the road, 60 kilometers an hour and just not to disrupt anybody not to make not to make uh, not to make things awkward for anyone we want to be the biggest club in canada and we want to have a rivalry with mls teams 
we want to stir the pot we want to do things differently and if that takes five years if it takes 30 years 50 years you know whatever but like you want to leave a footprint the worst thing is to just be nothing the worst thing is to just disappear and no one remembers who you were um and that's why a football club needs to go beyond what happens on a pitch because you, you know in terms of a game you want to create well you want to create a memory so it's not just about it's not just about what happens on a pitch because that's 90 minutes like i remember my memories of a kid as a kid going to games with my cousin and you remember the walk to the stadium you remember the stuff that you talk to your cousin about. You remember buying your match program. You remember, you know, lining up to get your sausage roll or your hot dog or your burger or whatever and your can of Coke. Yes. Um, they all, they all the, the stuff from the games, it kind of melds together sometimes. You remember the big moments, but for the you know, vast majority of it, which is League of Ireland, which is a lot of nil-nil draws, um, <laughs> you, know, you know, that kind of gets shelved. It's the other stuff that's really important and what we want to try to do is you know it's difficult in a pandemic we want to try to get across to a community that this is a place for you to come and build memories be it with your kids with your loved ones with random people with that girl that you really fancy that works in your office and you want a date night and you bring them out to a game or you you know we try to facilitate a viewing somewhere or a drive-in somewhere and yet let York 9 become that part of your life. And it, it's built around that. And I think that there's something pure and there's probably something really horribly cliched about that. And there's probably like really Richard Curtis-y rom-com Notting Hill about that. Um, but uh, like there needs to be a place for that as well. I mean, it, 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 like covering football for all of my life in, my, in terms of my career, it can get so cynical and it can be bad for your mental health, man. Like, you know, covering massive corporations who run clubs and they just, you know, Macclesfield, you know, this week, the story about Macclesfield that were just, uh, you know, you talk about things disappearing. Macclesfield's stadium now being, you know, advertised. Yeah, what a great real estate opportunity. You're thinking that's a football ground. That's got over, like, over 100 years of memories there for people in a community and it's just gone. And because it was allowed to slip through people's fingers, and you know that that's that's so bad, you know. So there's so much cynicism. It's up to us to try to build the optimism. And you know, in terms of what we're trying to do with the club, young players from a region, you know, you talk about the excitement of putting on a shirt with your name and number on the back of it, you know, and you're growing up 20 minutes down the road or whatever it is. Your parents and your your social network and your community rallying behind you, like that stuff is powerful. And and again it feeds into that sense of optimism, right? It feeds into that sense of, okay, we're, we're accomplishing something here. Um, you know, there, there's not that same gulf between the supporters and the team that there is so many places around the world. Um, like, you know, how difficult is it for people to get tickets to a Premier League game? How difficult is it for them to actually feel like they're part of a fabric? How difficult is it? You know, I speak for myself. I support a certain Premier League team. I've never felt more disconnected from them. Um, you know, I don't know who they are. I don't know what they represent. It's certainly not what they what 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 it was like when I fell in love with them when I was a kid, um, where everything seemed to be smaller and more. Um, you know, I was able to grasp it. I could see it. Now it's about commercial partners and it's about you know your noodle sponsor and your betting sponsor and your all that sort of stuff. And you know, it's just crazy stuff. You have to be better than that, right? You have to represent something that's greater than that. It's not all about um, branded content and it's not all about doing things for the sake of it. You have to have some part of you that is organic and you bring it back to the Canadian Premier League. 
it's very green and sometimes it's really important to be green because the cynicism hasn't got into it yet um and so it's it's important for us to keep that sense of of optimism and ambition certainly for us you know as i said we we want to do some really great things and some really positive things and not just you know obviously it's york nine and it's it's community based but you know i said to gus when we chatted before i want york nine fans in alberta I want York Nine fans in Saskatchewan. Like I want York Nine fans spread across the entire country because they love Manny Aparicio, or they think Nate Ingham is a great goalkeeper, or you know they love Lowell Wright's story, or they love Aisha Halley and the way he plays. Because you know, that's you know sometimes you know you 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 know you're you're brought up in Cork, but you love Liam Coyle who plays for Derry City, so you've always got a soft spot for Derry City. You know, like it's that's that's how football is as well. Well, you've kind of have you know you've oh, I hope Liam Coyle as well today you know but you keep it under your breath, um, so I, I think that 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 those are the ambitions that we have as a club. Obviously, want it bigger. And um, first season obviously was a little bit chaotic, but that was to be expected. Um, so I, I just think it's it's um, I'm excited to to do other things that go beyond the pitch, and you know that's for football clubs in a modern setting. So important and such a contrast to what's happening everywhere else. Awesome. Um, so just moving on to, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the book because uh, obviously um, Roy Keane is a, a big part of Irish fabric. Um, what is it about him that, like he retired from football 15, 14, 15 years ago now. Um, we still, like anything that comes out about him, we just pour over. We just have to, get, we have to intake it. Uh, what is it about him that, makes us all so crazy about him that's a difficult question I think it comes back to being from Ireland and I think people in Ireland like their sports people in a certain way actually they don't just like their sports people in a certain way they like everyone in a certain way if you get above your station you know that's a problem so you know we love Sonia O'Sullivan because she's understated. We love Katie Taylor because she's understated. Um, they don't court publicity. They don't say outlandish things. They don't carry a degree of ego. Um, they don't. They don't drip arrogance. Um, they don't, you know, have a big mouth. And Keen was all of those things. And Keen goes against Irish sensibilities in that way. I think that there's a lot of people who have made, who have made themselves when they step away and, you know, people have a problem, you know, you, you, I don't know, we always come back to the U2 example, you know, Bono is the worst person in the world because he talks about charity and like wants to make the world a better place. And so many Irish people think he's an asshole because of it. You know, I just think there's so many worse things. <laughs> Pretentious to, wanker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> too great. Look, look at you talking about charity, you wanker. You know, yeah. Like, how, you know, what, you know, like, so there's that sort of element to it. And I think Keen fit to that. Keen went and became a superstar and he had a mouth on him and he wanted to be better. He wanted Ireland to be better, right? He, he like, you know, he, he wanted Ireland to step out of the Father Ted situation of like, you know, chancing your luck. You know, he, he, wanted, you know, he wanted Ireland to, to sit in first class on an airline rather than hoping you get bumped up by saying something nice to the air stewardess. You know, like, you're there because you deserve to be there. And, and you kind of have to wear that. And you have to wear that with pride. And, 
you know, people take that in certain ways, right? People go, oh, he's, you know, he's too mouthy, he's too gobby or whatever. And in, in fairness, in, in, in a book, one thing that becomes really apparent is the, the lavish praise that was bestowed upon Keane from the get-go in England. So he goes to, to Nottingham Forest when he's a, a teenager in 1990. And a lavish praise is in the UK media who are just, they're looking at this kid thinking, where did this guy come from? And in Ireland, it was a much slower burn. You know, it was like, yeah, he's he's okay. You know, know, Jack Charlton, "Mm, he's all right. You know, I'm not going to cap him, even though he's like burning it up in first division in England as a teenager, which the only other teenager that was doing the exact same thing was Ryan Giggs, who was lauded as the the first teenage superstar since George Best. Um, And like... So it's a kind of a, a weird thing. I, I don't think Roy Keane sits easily in the Irish psyche. Um, he kind of he goes against so much of what we are. Um, they, and they, like you know, Irish people are incredibly incredible begrudgers. Um, and I think Keane slots so easily into that. You know, like um, you know, Keane is the greatest footballer that Ireland's ever produced. And I will argue that with anybody and I will win every argument because it's no real argument. Um, but so many in Ireland, in, so many people in Ireland still don't like him. And I, I, I don't know why. Um, I, I really don't. Um, I, I struggle to, to figure out the, the difficulties in the book. We kind of list the, the various disappointments that he had to go through as a young player um, within his own country. Um, perennially overlooked perennially disappointed at underage level in terms of a lack of involvement. Um, just a, a real lack of belief in him um, by people who really should have been put, putting him on a pulpit, you know, and kind of thinking, this guy's ours, you know, we really need to protect him. Like, if you compare it to modern era, can you imagine the absolute hysteria if a player goes from playing League of Ireland First Division, not even League of Ireland Premier Division, League of Ireland First Division, who has never had a trial in England, has never had a trial with any club, and makes his debut at Anfield against Liverpool. And then, not only that, any, any young player can make a debut. He stays in that team under the most charismatic slash eccentric slash contrarian manager at the time in Brian Clough. He finishes his first season shortlisted for the PFA Young Player of the Year Award. He plays at Wembley in FA Cup final. And... Can you imagine if that is an Irish player in 2020, the level of hysteria that would have greeted that player? Um, you know, Keane wasn't even being capped at senior level until the very end of that season um, when, you know, he was winning awards, um, Barclays Young Eagle of the Month Award consistently. You had Graham Taylor, who was England manager at the time, singing his praises, saying, Jack Charlton's so lucky to have this kid and Charlton not capping him at senior level. Um, you know, because, you know, Charlton just didn't enjoy the type of player that Keane was. He he was he had too much freedom. He it was a risk putting him in midfield he, because he could you know like he was a footballer. You know he could like footballers, um, and uh, so there's there's so many layers to it. And and he's just such a you know I think later in life obviously he's become something else. Um, you know people I think I think really people want to believe in a myth. They, they're so desperate to believe in a myth, and and the. The, the reality is boring. The myth is exciting. You know, when when so when I tell you at the start of this interview that I was taking down my daughter's filthy, dirty nappies, it, it shatters. It shatters any degree yeah, of 
Yes, I was just talking to my Hollywood agent there about my next film. You know, like, you're like, this guy is just a fucking regular guy and it just ruined everything. And in much the same way, um, you want to believe in that Roy Keane goes home, doesn't talk to his kids, doesn't talk to his wife, goes out to the shed, has a six pack of cans, puts his feet up and just thinks about how bad the world is. Um, people really want to probably believe that that's the case when in actual fact, he's a really funny guy, a really incredibly acerbic wit, um, which is kind of really from, a, from, from, from birth because you grow up in Cork and that's really what we all have. Um, and th- there's, you know, I think people really want to believe in this darkness that Keane has, that he's just a moody guy and it's relentless and he's the Victor Meldrew of football. And you, you, you go through this book and you go through when he was 18 and 19 and he's just been so consistent, you know, if, in terms of the level that he demands, um, the, what he wants from the people around him, um, the, the seeing through the bullshit. Um, you know, he saw through the bullshit, like, when he was a teenager, you know, he saw his teammates being given opportunities in England to trial with big teams. And because he was small, people thought he was diminutive as a midfielder. He wasn't given the same opportunity. And yet he was captain of his team. He was the leader of his team. He was an inspirational player on his team and his team were the best in the country. So using that logic, his size detrimental to how he played a game. And that's how the scouts would always just say flippantly, ah, he's too small. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's 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 funny. Like it, it it's um people want to believe something so much, and in Keane's case, it's just kind of been a slightly unfair on him. I think you know, I think he's a lot more he, he's a lot more he's a lot warmer and a lot more interesting and a lot less one dimensional than people would would want to believe. Um, I think there's a lot more going on with him, um, and he's bottom line just an incredible footballer and uh, like a lot of the book focuses on um, I think there's you talk about a myth Keane's later career with Manchester United I think is defined by an image shaven head aggressive combative physical snarling gnarling fighter warrior it's that last word really I think it appears only once I think my book is about 93,000 words long I think warrior is used just once and it's kind of used in a bit of a mocking way really um, he's so much more than that but he was reduced to that at Manchester United it was very easy to just label him as those things and uh, you know I think when you go back to his Nottingham Forest days he's an attacking midfielder you know you watch some of the footage you're actually some goals he scored, some of the runs he made, some of the passes he played. You know, and this is a kid from a really working class area of Cork City who grew up in you know the seventies, the eighties. The country was in massive decay economically. There's no hope for him, no education, and there was no hope. You know that that's your future. Your future's already done. You know you will be here. You will stay here. Your football career is going down the toilet, and yet you know one day. He plays a U-team game. He's spotted by a scout. The scout sees something in him in Dublin and your life changes. And there's something really cinematic about that story. He never had to scrub football boots. He never had to mop up dressing rooms as an apprentice. Like he, Instead, he had to wait and wait and wait and wait and do the hard work just so that on the off chance the opportunity came, he was ready for it. And that was 1990 when he made his debut, 30 years ago. The anniversary was the 28th of August of his debut against Liverpool. 
And since that day, you talk about not wasting an opportunity. Uh, you think of the trajectory usually of players. You know, you, you, there's ups and downs, and you're in and out of teams. He was ever present for Forest, record transfer to Manchester United, becomes an integral part of Manchester United, the most successful team uh, in England, one of the best in Europe, captains them to a treble, continues on through that as a leader and inspiration. He just never stopped from 1990 up until 2005, 2006. Like, that's incredible. And yet, still so many people are um, are annoyed with him or irritated or irritated irritated when when the topic of Roy Keane comes up, which is kind of astonishing to me. But um, a really compelling guy, and uh, I loved loved every second of doing this book. You said there that a lot of people see him as combative and a pain in the arse is what a lot of people would think of him as. But a a lot of the things that came across in the book is how he just did everything that Brian Clough wanted him to do. He was like, so he just like Brian Clough said, you're playing left wing, you're playing center half, you're playing in the middle, you're playing here, here, here. So I, I don't think, I, I don't think that comes across in the book at all about him being any sort of trouble to anybody. He just seems to go along with the flow and just waiting for the, the moment to come across. But back in Ireland at that time, like it just seems so um, unforgiving for young kids to try and get into the, the game in England. Do you think the game has changed like that in Ireland or is it still that, awful thing of like you're just waiting for a scout to pick you up rather than being able to go through academies and, and stuff like that I think it's horrific I think it's I mean we now live in a, in a world thankfully where we look at the nature of coaching even it's much more cerebral and it's much more patient it's much more tolerable because you know there's <laughs> there used to be one way of doing things and you'd scream at fellas, um, you know, scream, work harder, do that better. And because the, the rule was that surely every personality is the same. And what we've learned is no two people are the same. You cannot, you can't, it has to be, there has to be some sort of leeway in how we approach these things. Um, you know, in my work as a journalist, I've interviewed so many guys who have gone through the mill in their careers. You know, guys who have signed for a big club at 16, stayed at that club for seven, eight years, never played a single game. They're on the books, but they're loaned here, there, everywhere. Um, They start losing faith in themselves. Um, When they go home, you know, there's a lot of people wondering, oh, you know, have you made an appearance yet? Like, how's that going? And there's an embarrassment there. You know, you're, you're on the books of a big club, but you're really invisible. No one knows who you are. And in terms of your mental health, in terms of your, your way of dealing with that, there's a massive problem in terms of how can you be expected at 15 years of age or 16 years of age to go through a serious transition um, in, in, in who you are, be transplanted to a different place, to then be asked every day to go into your job to work, give 110%. And if you drop your concentration, if you drop your work ethic, even by, by a, a percent, 5%, if you go out one night with your, la- with your mates, try to let off some steam, you're brought into an office and reprimanded and told that how lucky you are to be here and how you should be on your knees, thanking God that you're given this opportunity. And everything is so precarious. And, and all it takes is an injury, you get a bad in, you get a bad injury. All it takes is a change of coach, 
um, and and that and you you brought up the Keen book at so many moments of Keen's early career. I mean, there's it's a sliding doors moment. Something happens a certain way. It's great for Keen, but it could so easily have gone the other way, and you'll never hear of him again. He just disappears, and you know it's it's. You know, I've always felt that that 15, 16 year, years of age thing for going across and trialing is like really, really horrible. Um, you're so young and impressionable and you're an emerging person. And like that, if, if, you, if you get a, a, a really um, traumatic experience and, and if, you, if you have to struggle through that, well, there may be PTSD. You know, there may be, there may be things that linger there years later on. And, you, and you, you don't know that until you get into your 20s, into your late 20s. And there's so many, so many examples of, of young kids who burst onto a scene, they score a goal on their debut, and they vanish. And, you know, I think as well, there's a really horrendous trait and trend of 10 of Manchester United's greatest flops um, you know, and, and these listicles of all these players that have like, you know, human beings, right? Human beings, like one that easily comes to mind is Michael Johnson at Manchester City, he was a young kid who was homegrown talent and he was a brilliant player, superb footballer, had his fitness issues and disappears and he's struggling to come back. And then, you know, there's a photo circulates on social media of him, obviously not having the footballer's physique anymore because he's gone through recovery and it's shared on social media. Look at the state of this guy. Remember this guy, he's flopped. No one's heard from him. Here he is in a kebab shop. And what people have to remember is these these guys are, are human beings and they have their, like... Their football is their job and there are moments when they step off a field where they become a person again and so like when Raheem Sterling is the subject of racial abuse relentlessly for just being who he is or for you know various guys who get punished for having a certain type of personality or Paul Pogba changes his hairstyle and he's vilified for it you know we like this used to be the case for for referees you know you remember referees being absolutely vilified and, and it, it, it you know we're, we're, I think, thankfully, kind of gone beyond that a little bit where that's calmed down. But for a long period, you know, these guys had day jobs. You remember referees being the headmasters, you know, or like David Ellery, you know, was, he would work in a, in a school and you have to go in and face the music, you know, and you, people just forget this stuff, like the vitriolic abuse and um, and, and, and particularly with, um, with young players. Like that age, you, you know, like take a second and think back to what you were like when you were 15 and 16. And to have to deal with everything else to do with a football career and a burgeoning career and the pressures of that and, and earning a bit of money and a car and your hair and your clothes and all of that being part of it. You know, it's great thinking in theory that everyone's going to be a model professional at 16. I'm going to go in and do my job and I'll say, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. No problem, sir. And everything will be fine. But, you know, that's really, really difficult. Um, so it, it's... it's um, there's so many layers to it because you're dealing with human beings. Um, and I think it's, it's that age group I'd always love and I'd urge, um, you know, kids to hold off as long as possible before making that move over. Um, try to be 18, 19, you know, you think of in your life, usually around 18, 19 is college, you know, so you, you finish your secondary education and, you know, in university, you're kind of 
now you're kind of beginning to form a bit of a personality for yourself and a little bit of an identity. And I think, you know, it kind of marries nicely into a football thing as well, where like you're finally maturing maybe as a little bit of a footballer and you're finding your feet in a much better way than you would be two or three years before and where you're still raw and unfinished and unpolished. So um, that's a long winded rambling answer um, <laughs> I don't even know if it is an answer it's just kind of a random assortment of uh, thoughts on that but I think it's y- you have to remember these people are human beings you know that that's what it comes down to and uh, they needed they need to be treated with respect always um, you know no matter if they're 15 or if they're 35 Brian Clough obviously as you mentioned earlier Ron, he's kind of eccentric but charismatic so many words to describe him uh, do you think he was the right manager at the right time for Keane in that you know, he gave him like the, the couple of days off to go home to Cork to look after or whatever. And he like, he made a big song and dance about his mom and dad coming over and stuff for like that. So do you think he was the right manager to start keying off on his journey? Yeah, it's, it's funny because I guess you always compare it to the way things ended with Ferguson. And, you know, the big difference is Keane had Clough for three seasons and he had Ferguson for 12 and a half. So... I think if, if he had Clough for 12 and a half seasons, things might have turned out a little bit differently <laughs> and vice versa. Um, but I do think that, again, you come back to football and you come back to timing, you come back to sliding doors. You know, Clough was coming to the end of his career. Um, he'd kind of become very safe in who he was and what he'd accomplished as a manager. I think he knew that the magic that he brought to Nottingham Forest in 1979, 1980, back-to-back European Cup winners for for a, really a provincial club that he would never repeat that um, you know that that was that was probably going to be the defining moment of his career and you come around to to the end of the 80s into the early 90s and you're trying to you're trying to figure out what you're going to do and where, like where you're going with your career and obviously by that stage you know that he had his own personal demons that were kind of affecting him and then this fella from Ireland shows up you pay 20 grand for him up front and everything you ask him to do, he does. And he plays like no one you've ever seen before. And, you know, on his debut, he tells John Barnes to fuck off. You know, you think, okay, this kid, you know, this kid's okay. And like uh, Brian Rice, a teammate of his uh the time you know says it the first thing he saw him it was we don't have anything like this in the team and it was again you just like there's that jolt there's that jolt of something new and fresh and I think for Clough who was kind of going through the motions of his coaching career going through the motions at that club Keane just comes in and is such a bonus you know you pay 20 grand for a player and you never expect to see much of him and he ends up selling him for three and three quarter million record transfer to the biggest club in the country. And again, something that Brian Clough absolutely loved. Um, you know, and, and in many ways, Keane was Clough's greatest success uh, in the latter part of his career. You know, you think of what Keane went on to do in his, in, in, with Manchester United and the, the level of achievement that, that he experienced. Um, you know, Clough, yeah, there was a, a couple of League Cups and, um, you know, a number of Wembley appearances. But I think really that, that latter part of his time as Nottingham Forest manager is, is almost defined by Roy Keane appearing in 1990 and giving everyone this sort of like massive um, increase in, in interest and momentum. And um, here was this kid 
who within a couple of seasons has been linked with moves to Syria clubs, you know, who within a couple of seasons, you know, it was like 5 million, you know, they wanted for him. And, um, you know, this kid who has been shortlisted for, for awards and Forrest didn't have that. You know, the, you know, Jonathan Wilson makes a good point in a book where he, he talks about, you know, the collection of nice young men that, that, and they all look the same, you know, Nigel Clough, um, Dick Glover, um, you know, Ian Wone, you know, all these guys have the same haircut. There's a pleasant, polite kid. And then you, you throw the grenade in the mix, right? You, here comes Roy Keane. And, you know, there's a, a moment where they play, um, I think it's a League Cup final against United in 1992. And he had the, he had the, the, the real um, rockabilly sort of haircut in 1991. And in 1992, as the teams arrive at Wembley, the hair gets shaved. And he has the really, he has a really tight haircut, and it seemed to be that moment of the fork in the road. You know, you can become, you can, you can stay that sort of polite young man, or you can go down a different road for yourself. And Keane shaves the head, and he he becomes something a little bit different. He starts to know what he's worth. He starts to know that right. I'm probably going to have to get out of this club because I've got ambition. I've got things I want to achieve. This is this club has given me so much, but it's not enough. I know that I can do better, and that that seemed to be a nice moment for him. Uh, I I'm a fan of metaphors, and uh, I think that that's a really lovely one for him in terms of that forest career. Um, something as simple as cutting your hair, and it, it's a kind of a expression of maybe a, who you are what you want to become. And uh, that was 1992. And, and really within, within 12 months, he was, he was signing for United. It's like when the Beatles uh, got rid of the suit and went to the Sergeant Pepper's beautiful suits kind of thing, right? <laughs> so, so just, uh, obviously we don't want to keep you here all night and, and, and all that kind of stuff, but I just have one more quick question. So um, obviously the word loyalty is mentioned a lot by Roy Keane. Like it's, it's kind of one of those buzzwords and it's in the book too, that he, he felt a lot of loyalty to a lot of people in the game. Do you think that belief is, hindered his career and like never getting to go and play for like Real Madrid or Juventus because obviously those those teams were knocking on the door for him um, do you think that, 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 that loyalty that he felt to a lot of people kind of uh, held him back I think I think if I had to choose to be a fly on the wall anywhere it would be when Alex Ferguson brings Keane into the office Manchester United and he sits down with him David Gill is there and Michael Kennedy, Keane's advisor, is there. And Ferguson says, you're done at this club because I think that is in Roy Keane's life, not just his career as a footballer. I think it is a defining moment of him. It's like an awakening almost where you think you know something. You think you have something defined and how things work. And then that whole definition is ripped up in front of you and you have to start all over again. I think he felt that there was a connection to Ferguson. Like he felt that he was more than a player to Ferguson. Like he felt that there was a closeness, that there was a relationship that went beyond, we were talking about earlier on, went beyond that pitch. And Ferguson says, no, no, there isn't. And I think that, you know, that level of disappointment when you believe in something so much and you know, a person takes the mask off and they reveal themselves to be something else. And you feel that you've been duped a little bit because I, I don't think that Keane can ever quite separate 
the success that he had at Manchester United with the way things ended at Manchester United. And I think the whole question of loyalty is, is an interesting one. I think if he could see how things ended at that club, he would have moved. He would have gone somewhere else. I, th- I think the key moment was, <laughs> you think back to funny moments in football, there's so many of them. You know, 1999, United win the treble and Keane renegotiates a contract and the audacity of him, you know, he wants 52 grand a week or 50 grand a week, whatever it was. And, you know, it was massive news. You know, how dare this guy want 50, 50 grand? <laughs> I know, yeah. he's, just captained, he's just captained the club to a historic treble, unprecedented. And, you know, that was the that was the moment really where I think he would have easily signed for Bayern Munich, Juventus were in the mix. And there's a part to me that just, you know, him playing alongside those players, you know, that, you know, those guys that, you know, he, he, you know, the workhorses, you know, the guys that really just, they had the talent, but by God, they worked hard to have that talent as well. And I think seeing him in that setting would have just been, extraordinary I'm sure it would have lasted only maybe a season or two or probably two seasons um, you know, he may have signed a three year deal and it, you know whatever but it would have been incredible to see him there uh, because even in the book when he signs for United in 93 um, there are like Sampdoria was one of the teams at the time that were sniffing around him the season before was Genoa and you know one of the characters that emerges late on in the book is David Platt who was in Italy at the time and Platt was such a great technical player they had the two of them actually had a lot of similarities goal scoring midfielders really obviously in Italy at, at that stage strikers didn't score that many goals you know defences were, were so crucial in, in how teams operated so you'd have like top scorers in Serie A who'd end up with 14 or 15 goals a season and the emphasis was on a goal scoring midfielder somebody who could contribute from elsewhere Platt did that superbly and when Keane signs for United, Platt is one of the guys who says, you know, it's a great move for Roy. Do maybe three years at Man United and then come over to Italy. And, you know, even for Platt, he looked at United as possibly a stopgap because Keane seemed to have a lot in his game that could be easily transferable to where, you know, where the peak was at that stage. Um, so in, in terms of the question of loyalty, and I, obviously as well, I think that, that he's always responded so fervently and passionately to anyone who talks about Ferguson uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a loyal guy or somebody who stands by his players. You know, I think Keane will absolutely nail you if you bring that up because it's, you know, for Keane, like there's a, there's a, there's a moment, not, not in this book, but like there's a moment in Brian Robson's autobiography and again, you, the things get forgotten over a period of time, you know, and, and probably for a lot of people listening to this podcast are like, Brian who? Um, but, you know, Brian Robson, the definitive Manchester United player before Man United started winning everything. Um, and the 1994 FA Cup final, Manchester United against Chelsea, um, Brian Robson has announced that he's leaving United. And he's going to go and sign for Middlesbrough as a player coach. So the FA Cup final at Wembley against Chelsea will be Brian Robson's last ever game for Man United. And he had played in the semi-final replay against Oldham, had scored. He had a really great game. And he was obviously old at this stage. He was, what, 35, 36. And you think to yourself, you'll obviously include Brian Robson as part of your FA Cup squad because that's just the right thing to do. This guy is Captain Marvel. He, like, you know, when things are bad at this club, Brian Robson was the beating heart of it. 
And a couple of days before the cup final, Alex Ferguson brings Brian Robson into his office and says, uh, I'm putting Lee Sharp and Brian McClare on the bench for the game against Chelsea. I can't have you in the squad. And he hands him a couple of wads of cash and basically tells him to go drown his sorrows. Jesus Christ. And like that, Brian Robson writes about that in his book. And you think to yourself, <laughs> you know, there's a way of doing things and there's a way of not doing things. And, you know, it, it, that, that sort of stuff is kind of preposterous, right? Wow. And so, you know, I think Keane, and Keane, like Keane would, would be, is a big advocate for talk to the guys who were fucked over by Fergie at United, the guys who were loyal to him, Steve Bruce, Ruud van Nistelrooy, talk to David Beckham about him, um, guys who like had the audacity to like fall in love with some woman and Ferguson has a problem with it and you're out the door because you're, you've put peroxide in your hair. Um, and, <laughs> you know, so like, I think loyalty with Keane is a really, <laughs> be a great question to ask him actually, you know, if you ever came face to face with him. I, I, I think I'd be afraid to ask him anything to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you both. <laughs> wow. So, uh, Carlos, do you have any more questions for Owen? Yeah, just a very quick one. Um, I know you got a documentary called a Celtic, Celtic Soul. Do you have any plans to have a, a common one? Not maybe a sequel, but maybe another project, like another documentary, kind of like following that line? Um, yeah, well... You can take me and Carlos on a tour of Ireland and uh, bring us over to Celtic if you want to, you know? <laughs> yeah, that might be. Um, yeah the, the, the sequel thing, maybe not so much, but, but me and Jay have talked about doing something else together um, because it, it, was, uh, it was great fun. I mean, that, you, sometimes it, it's weird. You, you know, I talked earlier about being optimistic and, and you know, being ambitious and having these fanciful goals and, and in Ireland a lot of people will tell you that you're mad you know like what are you talking like that for why are you thinking like that's never going to happen and you know I, I came up with the concept for that film in Dublin at my kitchen table and <laughs> there was no reason why that documentary should ever be made because <laughs> like I was in Dublin I'd never met Jay Barshell um, and then you talk about sliding doors moments um, you know, I was putting together a kind of a Celtic documentary pitch and then he follows me on Twitter and, uh, you know, he used to watch Fox Soccer Report all the time. And, uh, I thought, you know, I didn't know this at all. And we, we started to, to talk and I knew that he was a Celtic fan and I was like, Oh, funny enough, I'm kind of working on this Celtic thing myself, this little documentary. And then you fast forward about what, 18 months, that's probably how long it took. I mean, document, it takes a long time to get your funding and to get production companies on board. And, uh, but there was no reason why that would have happened. You know, it was just, you bring it back to York nine, you bring it back to CPL chemistry, the right people, the right collaboration and the right timing. And you put all of that stuff together, you know, you mix it with a bit of passion, a bit of creativity and a lot of belief and we still get messages to this day it's crazy you know like we we made this we made this little film and we thought it would have a little run in in north america and it i can't i've lost count of how many countries around the world that it was screened in but i remember one day they were in it was in yokohama in japan 
And I got a photograph sent to me by these guys watching the film in Yokohama with all their Celtic gear on. I went to Bilbao. We were invited to go to Bilbao mm-hmm. to a film festival. And uh, it, it was, it's run by Athletic Club. It's called the Thinking Football Festival. And uh, I remember being, it was a beautiful evening in Bilbao and we'd just been in Barcelona to do another film festival. And I remember being on the boardwalk next to the Guggenheim in Bilbao and the sun was just beautiful on the water and in the Basque country. I was standing there thinking, like, how did I, how did I get here? Like, how, <laughs> One of those how moments. How did this happen? And but, you, you know, fucking chancer, and you did it. Yeah, <laughs> someone, someone, like, this is crazy. It's so far chancing your arm. Get um, Where well, there you go? What you could do is uh, maybe an idea for your sixth sequel. Is just go to the craziest countries and cover the derbies, like Fenerbahce um, was in the Besiktas, or like Boca River in Argentina. You know, or Bohemian Shamrock Rovers. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go too far. That's a bit crazy. That one, to be honest with you. Yeah. So, it, it is, yeah. There's a couple of there's a couple of ideas that we have, and we'll we'll see. Um, it's it's difficult in a pandemic to try to um, properly figure out how this is all going to play out. Um, but it would it would be brilliant to to do something else with him uh, because Definitely. we uh, we're we're always in touch with each other, and um, we're, we always we always have good fun whenever we hang out. So um, yeah. Watch this space, I guess, would be my, my answer to that. Amazing. And uh, just one last one for me. So uh, when you were in Montreal, you had the poutine and all that kind of stuff, and you seemed to enjoy yourself. Yes. What's better, Montreal poutine or a three-in-one from back home? Oh, fucking hell. There's no, <laughs> there's no comparison to you right there. Um, the, 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 the curry, like the curry phenomenon, like in Ireland, you know, curry chips – and a three and one is like like so I'm married to my, my Mrs. Lindsay who's from Crumlin and like it's it's you know she's like so hardcore Dublin and you know we talk the, the, her biggest topic of conversation in our house is food um, <laughs> you know like Irish bread we're, we're like we're so, many, we're so many so many different types of bread and we're like I think the other day we were talking we're like if you could pick one food to have for the rest of your life, like what would you, what would it be? And like Lindsay's like probably bread, like it would probably be different. Like, cause you can do so much with, with breaded sort of material. Um, and so the easy answer is, is three in one every day of the week or like st- stuff that just like, you just cannot get here to the same degree. Like chocolate tastes like shit here. Um, you know, I'm like, you know, the, the milk is different. So I'm like the cat, you know, the, it, it's, it, so when we get sent care packages to, from, from back home, it's like, it's liquid gold is what you're tasting, right? You're opening your dairy milk and you're like, this is, this should be banned. Like, this is just, <laughs> this is just too hardcore. Like this is addictive at this stage. Um, so I mean, all that stuff, when we go home, it's just, um, it, it's just a food tour. It's like... Uh, I uh, I grew up right beside the uh, Cabby factory and the Taylor factory in oh. Colock in Dublin. So oh. that's why I am the way I am. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> it's just in my bloodstream. Oh, oh, well, it's, 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 so. it's, yeah, it, it's... Um, 
<laughs> it, it, it's, uh, it's one of the, the greatest. And I, I, you know, when, when people talk about, you know, leaving your home country and going somewhere else, I never thought that like something I'd miss would be a three in one curry. <laughs> That's crazy. But, it's but, like, so, so my, my wife is Canadian and uh, whenever we go back to Dublin, it's literally the first thing we do. It's like we hit up somewhere and we just have a three in one. So three in one, Carlos, is uh, chips, curry sauce and rice. And it's rice, like, yeah. And, 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 and then you have to have a, a bit. You have to have a bit of onion in there. Yeah, that's the perfect Hanover food. Yeah, no, it's the perfect. Like you, you, you eat that when you're like pissed. I mean, you on your way home from the pub, you go to the the takeaway and you get a tree and one to sort nice. it out for the next day. Yeah, and so, just just that, like take take away chips, like chips or like you can't. It's very difficult to describe to Canadians. You know, they, they, they oh, you mean fries, and you're like, okay, no, I don't mean fries. Like you know, it's just it's something else chips. entirely. Soggy, um, soggy, vinegary, salty fucking chips. Yes, uh, like, so, and. So, and it's a meal, right? People forget, like in a home, it's a meal. Chips is a meal, like it's you know, it's so substantial. And here's like these it's little tiny phrase, or it's 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 just look, you know, it's it's first world problems ultimately. Um, yeah. You know, I think I think we, we struggle on and we we deal with Canadians and our bad food choices. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm I'm eternally grateful. It's weird we we've given birth or my wife has given birth to our first kid who is Canadian now, which is a weird thing to wrap yeah. around. Um, you, you have like we've lived in Canada what cumulatively about six years at this stage, and our daughter is more Canadian. She's got a birth certificate and everything. Um, and we're like, how did that work? Like, how does how she just get it so, automatically? So, so instead of like teaching her like uh, mommy and daddy and all that kind of stuff, you're like, say langer. <laughs> <laughs> say bin don't say garbage it's yeah, rubbish here's, here's the thing. Like, we've had these conversations up, like recently I said to my wife just to wind her up a little bit I'm like what are you going to do when her daughter comes into you one day and says hey mom <laughs> that's it we're moving back home pack <laughs> your bags my missus is like it'll be ma it'll be ma and dad that's what it's going to be and I'm like, I'm not oh, sure about that when she comes in and says, I, I got to take the trash out, mom. I can just imagine like the, the family back in Crumlin when your Canadian daughter walks in and goes, hi, grandma. <laughs> hey, hi, hi, grandma. It's been so long since I sucked oh, last. Yeah. <laughs> well, last two seconds. So um, can you tell us where people can get the book? It's an amazing book and I recommend anybody to, to read it. It's such an important part of Roy Keane's career and it definitely helped development of the guy that he is. Um, where can people in Canada actually get the book physically and where can they get it digitally? So the best way is probably through Book Depository. Um, I think that's that's where worldwide orders um, have gone through and, and there's been a lot of people who have got, got their books in various parts of the world through Book Depository. So I think that's probably the easiest. Um, it's available uh, on ebook through uh, Kobo, I think um, through amazon.com as well um, for any Kindle users. Um, so and I think once you Google Keen Origins, I think you'll you'll come across some site that will help you out. I think that's probably the best way. Um, but definitely for worldwide orders, to get a physical copy in Canada, probably book depositories is the best way to go about it. Amazing. And where can people follow you on social media? Oh, you can follow me on Twitter. Owen O'Callaghan. If you can spell my fucking name, congratulations to you. Um, I'm not going to do it uh, phonetically um, because that's just embarrassing. Um, so... 
I just we just got a card from someone who knows us really well uh, to congratulate us on the birth of our of our child, and my name is spelled incorrectly on the card, which I find staggering. I'm like I've had so many different interpretations of my name since living in North America, and this one I'm like this is like crazy. It's O E I N, um, which I've 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 never seen. Oh wow! Um, yeah, like that's I'm a- like yes, it's just you've just inverted the first two letters, but still, when you look at it, you're like, that's a really weird looking name. But actually, spells closer to the way it sounds. To be perfectly honest, we put the O in front of the E. Yeah, I mean, I could tell you lots <laughs> of stories about my name in Canada and the difficulties that it's brought up. Um, you know, like, really, that this name is difficult for you, considering the variety <laughs> of names that exist in this country. Yeah. <laughs> And on Instagram, where can people find you? I don't even know my Instagram handle. You oh, probably can help me out there. Is uh, it Owen, Owen Dotto Callahan or something? It's, jeez, uh, I don't actually know. Hang on. I should be better at this, shouldn't I? I, I should know, be. yeah, exactly. Being like a, a, a journalistic type. Yeah, it's, I mean, uh, it's, Owen, it's Owen Dotto Callahan. So, yeah, so it's uh, your, your first name, Dotto Callahan. I'll let people work it out for themselves. And uh, <laughs> Carlos, where can people find you on social media? Uh, Twitter, uh, Mr. Benitez, and Instagram. No, Instagram, Mr. Benitez, and Twitter, Benny Golazo. Uh, and just a quick one, Carlos. Uh, what's happening with Diaz Football? Oh, this uh just like a startup that I have. Uh, you guys can give it a follow. Uh, it's a store that I'm going to launch a new website on Friday. Uh, it's Diaz Football. That's pretty much it. All the Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Perfect. And, of course, you can follow me at Down the Pub Pod on Instagram and Down the Pub Pod C1 on Twitter, I think it is. Um, so, yeah. So, Owen, I really want to appreciate – I really appreciate taking the time out from being a dad, being a journalist, being a writer, being Angus's new boss. It's been, it's been incredible to talk to you. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you giving us the time. And um, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Uh, hopefully, you can extend apologies to my wife because I'm sure I'll walk out of this office with her saying, you said you'd be 45 fucking minutes. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I want to do that. I, just, I want to do that Father Ted thing. Good luck with the book. So, uh, <laughs> Good luck with the book. <laughs> Take care, man. Thanks, Bill. <laughs> Thanks for the autograph. I have to go. We have some nuns coming to visit us on the island, so we're all very busy. Oh, okay, Val. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to the Down the Pub podcast, recorded in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Head to downthepub.ca to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.